please take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 5, and while you're doing that, kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church this morning. Revelation chapter 5. Now, as we come to this text, it reminds me of a novel or a movie where you see a hero and you finally come to the place to where you really understand that this hero is going to prevail. He's going to win. He's going to take the spot of heroism where he conquers evil and where he makes things right. And that's what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation as we transition to this passage that talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and the end times and him bringing to a close the kingdom of darkness and opening the way for the kingdom of God to take root and to take prominence in this world and to demonstrate the plan of God, the purpose of God being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to this text, we see that the Lord is worthy. But look at how the Lord is presented in this text. As we'll see as we go through this fifth chapter, the Lord is presented as a lamb. You know, a number of years ago, I was at a family function, and somebody asked me, why is the Jewish religion so bloody? Why all of the sacrifices? Why do they take something like a lamb and slaughter a lamb? Uh, it, it seems violent. It seems awful. It seems terrible. And I would submit to you that those visual images of animals being sacrificed were visual images of God's Son and the blood that he would sacrifice for us. And every time somebody saw that beautiful, pure, sweet little lamb being sacrificed, that lamb of innocence, it was a picture, a portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ who would come and live among us, the spotless lamb of God who would die on the cross. That's going to be presented as we go into this text. So, let's start with the first verse of chapter 5, and as we come to this, we find a big question, and the question is this, who is worthy to carry out God's plan? When we come to the first verse of the fifth chapter, it's within the context of Revelation chapter 4, and if you remember, Revelation chapter 4 was talking about the throne room of God. There was that beautiful throne that is described so beautifully in this text by emeralds and by precious stones and glory and lightning and thunder coming from this throne. And it's a picture of the power and the majesty and the glory of God. And you could be caught up in all of the worship by the angels and the elders, and you could miss something if you were John in this vision. But when we come to chapter 5, we notice something. He says in the first verse, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now, this scroll is going to have a prominent place in the book of Revelation. We're going to see that the seals that are opened from this scroll, this is a spoiler alert, but I think it's important, those seals are going to bring significant things from God as each one of those seals is broken open. 
But what we find here is on this throne of God, representing all of His authority, all of His power, He holds within His hand a plan, a plan for all of humankind. And this plan is sealed up, kept from us at the beginning of this chapter. And so, the imagery is, John is looking at this and he's fixated on this. He's wondering what the scroll is all about. And then we see something. As we come to the second verse, it says this, And I saw a winged angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who was worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Now, in order for us to understand what is going on here in this heavenly scene, we have to understand a scroll and seals because we don't have much context for that. When in the first century there was a scroll with a seal that was placed upon the scroll, one had to have the authority to break the seal in order to open the scroll. It wasn't a physical issue. Anybody could go and just pop the wax seal. It was more an authoritative issue. You had to have the power and the authority behind you in order to open that seal. And so here's the scene in heaven. We have God seated on the throne. He's holding a scroll in His hand written on the front and the back, rolled up, sealed with seals. And an angel is beginning to ask, Who can open the scroll? Now, bear this in mind. This scroll represents the unfolding of God's plan, the vanquishing of evil, the opening of the way for the kingdom of God to be established on earth and fully realized with all of its power and with all of its blessing. So here is this scroll sealed up and this angel asking this crucial question, Who can open the scroll? Who can get this thing started? Who can begin what is about to be described in all of these chapters later? Who has the authority to do that? And then we come to the third verse. And the third verse says this, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, this is building, isn't it? (laughs) You have this scroll. You have this curiosity. You wonder what's in this scroll. Why all of these seals? Why can't somebody just go up there and with their finger pop right across the edge of the scroll and open all of those seals? No one's found that has the authority to do it. And so look at the response in verse 4. John is there in this vision, eyewitness to all of this. And he says this, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open it or to look into it. Now, for us, we would look at that and we would say, well, why are you so upset because somebody can't open a scroll? I've gotten CDs before, and I know they're out of fashion, but I've, I swear nobody could open the cellophane package on the CD. Uh, I've, I've gotten other things sent to me shrink-wrapped shrink and nobody could open it, but I didn't cry about it. You know, why is John crying about this? He's weeping because that scroll represents the unfolding of God's plan. And so John knows intuitively this scroll is in the Father's hand and it's all that God has in store for the world around us. And if nobody opens this scroll, none of this gets going, none of this gets started. So it remaining in the hand of God unopened 
brought great fear and consternation to John. And here's why. Where was John's body? On the Isle of Patmos. Why was he on Patmos? Because a wicked emperor had imprisoned him. John, through his life, saw the Lord Jesus Christ, a righteous, innocent man, crucified by wicked men. John saw the church being persecuted. He saw his brother apostles martyred for their faith. John saw all of the horrible things of the kingdom of darkness, and he's looking at this scroll in the hand of God, and he's saying, I want to see God take care of these things. I want to see God stop these wicked things. And I know some of you have probably felt the same way, haven't you? When you see horrendous things happening in the world around us, when you look and you say, how can this be? How can such awful things happen and God doesn't intervene? Well, John knew that scroll was God intervening. That was God beginning to bring to terms all of the wickedness of man from the fall on. And so it's there, no one to open it. And then we come to the fifth verse. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The scroll has a solution. And that solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. What this elder is sharing with John in this vision is important for us to grasp. This elder is sharing with us that, yes, there is one who was worthy. And he's described, first of all, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, when we think about the lion of the tribe of Judah, we need to understand that, number one, the lion was the symbol for the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah was the tribe through whom kings came in Israel. And so, Jesus being the Lion of Judah was a statement about Him being the King of the kings. It was a statement about His power and His authority. It was also a statement about the fulfillment of prophecy that Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. So, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy and He's being identified as Messiah, the promised one of God who will see to God making right and establishing His kingdom on earth and overcoming evil. When you look at prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, there are always those promises that wrongs will be set right and that justice will prevail. So here is Jesus, the Messiah, standing as the Lamb, but described as the Lion of Judah. Look at what else we see. He is the Root of David. Now, Root of David, of course, describes for us the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the lineage of David, again, a messianic prophecy. And by messianic prophecy, I mean God would send His anointed one to be king. 
And he would set all of those things right. Again, this hope of this coming Messiah, this one who would wrong the right, or right the wrongs and straighten all, all of the mess that this world is in. This is the promise that's being articulated here in this text. And John hears this from the elder. But look at the last description this elder gives. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Root of David. And look at this. He has conquered. Now, I think it's significant, the tense that is used here. He has conquered. Not he will conquer. Not he is conquering. But that he has conquered. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ has the victory already. We are not waiting for the events of the book of Revelation to unfold so that he can get the victory. It is Jesus Christ having the victory. We know it. But it is going to come to the place to where what he accomplished on the cross at Calvary will be experienced by all. That's the beauty of this passage of Scripture. As conqueror for those who are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we see Him as Messiah. We see Him as Deliverer. We see Him as Savior. But for those who do not have that personal relationship with God, as we'll see as we go through the book of Revelation, He is Judge. And He will judge them for the evil that they have done and for the rejection that they have had toward Him as God's own. So it's important that we grasp what's going on here. Here is God setting the stage for all of this. The Apostle Paul said this in first, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It says this, He is the one who saved us and called us with a holy calling not based on our works, but on His own purpose and grace granted to us in Christ Jesus before time, but now made visible through the appearing of our Savior Christ. He has broken the power of death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is what God has done. This is how God has conquered. He has brought us into this place of victory over death, And He has brought us life. This is the conqueror that all heaven will worship. Now, as we go on in this text, we find that this vision had the elder describe Jesus as the lion, the root of Jesse, the conqueror. But then John actually sees the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this vision, again, we are finding language that describes what he saw in the best possible terms. This is not what Jesus will look like when we get to heaven, because what we see as we come to this sixth verse is that Jesus is described as a lamb, and he has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, when you get to heaven, you will not see Jesus appear to you as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. This is prophetic language that is describing for us important attributes, important aspects of who Jesus is. So let's break down what is being shared here in the sixth verse. In the sixth verse, it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, 
I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, let's pause there for a moment. What has been the posture of everyone else in all of heaven as they're before the throne of God? Falling down before Him, right? Seated on a throne, but then falling down before Him. Here is the Lamb standing. And I think that term standing has great significance for us. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ isn't a subordinate in the sense that we are. He is a peer with God the Father. He is equal to the Father because He is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here it's presented, I saw the Lord standing as though it had been slain. So this Lamb is standing there as though it had been slain. And then look at this description. It had seven horns. Now, many Bible teachers will give you many interpretations of what several of the things in the book of Revelation are. But the interpretation that makes the most sense to me is that these horns represent power. When you think about the pastoral setting where there are sheep, it was the ram with the biggest horns that had the power over the sheep. And he would battle other rams with big horns, but the guy with the biggest horns on his head cracked the other ones away, and they had prominence. That's the imagery that you have. Well, here the Lord Jesus Christ is presented as the lamb with seven horns, and these horns represent his power, the power of God. Seven is a number that repeatedly in Scripture carries with it the idea of completion. For instance, when we look at God's creation, from beginning to the day of rest, how many days? Seven days. Completeness. What we find here is the Lord Jesus Christ has absolute, complete power. I think that's what's being communicated by the seven horns. And so it's talking about the power and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. You see, as the Scripture goes on in this description, not only does it talk about these seven horns, but it also talks about seven eyes. And we don't have to guess what the seven eyes are because it's identified for us right here in the text. It says, they had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Now, as we have seen previously in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, the seven spirits represents the Spirit of God. And what the Word of God is teaching us in this passage is this. The Lord Jesus Christ is sending the Spirit of God, and through the Spirit of God, He sees everything that transpires worldwide. All over the world, the Spirit sees everything, and Jesus sees everything through the Spirit. So here is the Lamb. Here He is described in all of His glory, but then look at verse 7. And in verse 7, it goes on to discuss the fact that this Lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. Now, earlier in the text, no one's able to do this. They made a search. 
No one to be found. But here is the Lamb of God. And he stands before the throne and walks to the throne and takes the scroll from the right hand of God. You know what this is communicating? That Jesus again is a peer. Nobody walks up to a king in the first century and says, give me that. I want that, that's mine. You had to have the authority to approach the throne. You had to have the authority to take something from a king. Here is Jesus Christ, and he approaches the throne, and he takes the scroll because he has the authority to do so. So what does that mean? Scroll, a picture of God's unfolding plan for the world, for all of humanity. And the Lord Jesus Christ the one who had been slain on the cross, the one who rose again, is now alive and approaches God's throne and begins to implement God's plan for the entire world. That's the picture that we see here in this text. Now, it's in prophetic language, so that's why it sounds quite different than what we're used to in narrative but it's still communicating these truths. And then look at verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Here we see something startling take place. The Lamb is worshipped by the same creatures who were worshiping the one who was on the throne. Now, what does that tell us about the Lamb? Only God deserves worship. Only God should be worshiped. And I guarantee you, in heaven, only God would allow someone to worship them as far as angels and elders and all of those who were described around the throne. You know what this is saying about the Lord Jesus Christ? He is God. He receives worship from angels and from men because He is God, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an important text for us to grasp because there are many who would diminish who Jesus is. They would say he's a good teacher. They would say that he was a wonderful prophet. But that doesn't go far enough. Jesus Christ is God. He died on the cross, the lamb who was slain, but he rose again because he is the lamb who removes the scroll from the hand of God to execute the plan that God has for this world. But then we come to the ninth verse. And as we come to the ninth verse, we're given a glimpse into what this heavenly scene of worship is like. In chapter 5, verse 9, it says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
Now, let's look at this ninth verse, and let's unpack what is being shared. First of all, they sang a new song. You know, when you look in the Scripture, there are many passages that talk about singing a new song to God. The new song indicates a freshness, an ability to look upon God in a new and unique way. And listen, God should never become stale to us. He should never be so familiar that we lose our wonder. Even when we sing songs that we have sung before, it's still a new song because it is expressing from our heart a new realization of who God is and what He's like. If worship has become stale, that's on us, not on God, not on the song that we're singing. We need to, in a fresh way, see who God is and worship Him. Here are these people and angels in heaven, and they're singing this new song, and look at what they say. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. They're celebrating the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ, the victor, the hero, has come on the scene, and He can open the way for the execution of what God has in store for this earth by breaking the seals of that scroll. You know, we'll cheer when we see somebody do something amazing on the football field. We'll cheer when somebody we care about has a great success. That's small potatoes, folks. That's minor. Imagine the celebration in heaven when the Lamb who was slain takes the seal from the hand of God and and, and the scroll with those seven seals, and they know that the plan of God is on the fast track now. All of these thousands of years of prophecy are now coming to the place to where they're beginning to unfold what we have long waited for is finally here. That's why there's the celebration in heaven. And look at what they celebrate about the Lord. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, wait a minute. They're celebrating the fact that the Lamb was slain? Listen, the pivotal point of history is the cross. It is through the cross that God gives people before the cross and after the cross the way to having a relationship with Him, the only way. They celebrate the Lamb who was slain because of His great love and sacrifice and grace that was shown without a shadow of a doubt. They celebrate the Lamb who was slain because It is the perfect demonstration of God's grace because look at what that passage says. People from every tribe and every nation are given the opportunity to know God, to find forgiveness, to enter into a relationship with Him. This is why we celebrate the Lamb. This is why He is core, central to all that God's plan includes The Lamb secured this for us. 
Look at what else we find in this text. As we come to verse 10, it says this, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Here is the Word of God sharing with us what Christ accomplished for us. He accomplished the right, the privilege to become the people of God. In fact, the Word of God tells us that Jesus Christ is the Savior of any who will turn to Him and place their faith in Him. The Scripture says this in 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. This is our Jesus. This is the one who secured for us salvation. This is the one who grants us entrance into the glorious kingdom that he will establish on earth. Peter put it this way, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what Jesus did by ransoming us, by paying the penalty of our sin on the cross, giving us the opportunity to become, yes, the children of God. This is what we celebrate. This is what we are thankful for. Because of Him, we experience this. But I want you to look at something else. The Scripture goes on to say this, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. The whole of creation worships the Lamb. The Word of God is crystal clear that at some point every knee will bow before the Lamb. Paul said this to the Philippians, being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now look at this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I've said this often, but it bears repeating. You either find Jesus as your Savior or you face Him as your judge. This is what the Word of God presents. The Lamb was slain to give people the opportunity to know God and to experience His kingdom and to be part of that kingdom. But if we live life without coming to the Father through the Son, we stand separated from God, not the people of God. And the things that are described for us in the following chapters of the book of Revelation, 
will be the group that we're associated with. Really, when you look at the structure of the book of Revelation, you have one of two choices. You follow Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, God. You follow Him, or you reject Him, and you cast your lot in with those who stand opposed to God and face judgment as a result of that. The thing that's presented in Scripture is crystal clear, and it's this. There's no middle ground. There's no muddling in the middle. You either find Jesus as Savior or face Him as judge. Look at what the Scripture concludes with in this fifth chapter. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. In other words, it is true. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The Lord Jesus Christ has the authority to carry out the plan of God because of who he is. As we worship Jesus today, we worship the one who was the ransom for our sin, but we also worship the one who has conquered, as this text makes clear. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said this, that he was talking about the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And then he says this, concerning the Son who was a descendant from David according to the flesh and has declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the Lamb described here is the risen Christ. He was slain for our sin, but He rose again. And not only did He rise again, but He's coming again. And we're going to see a description in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation of what must take place before Christ's return and the kingdom is started. We started the sermon by talking about stories in books and in movies where the scene is being set for the hero. That's exactly what's going on here in the book of Revelation. But you know in those stories, often it gets worse before it gets better. Believe me, as we go through chapters 6 through 19, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But it will get better. You see, we know the end of the story. And we can watch as God's plan unfolds. In the human stories, it's possible to have failure. But in God's story, it's impossible because He is God. So in that, we can hope, we can rest, no matter how bad it gets, God wins because Jesus Christ has conquered already. Heavenly Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for the reminder that it is to us all that we have 
a risen Savior, the Lamb of God, the one who ransomed us from sin and brought us into right relationship with you. Oh, Lord, help us to be people who worship you for who you are. Let us be like those myriads of myriads in heaven that fall before you and give thanks because you are worthy. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.